Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. I'm so delighted to welcome each of you to attend our teleconference today. I have with me two of our brilliant, smart, and knowledgeable attorneys in the Green Card Perm Department who will discuss the Green Card process, the do's and don'ts of the recruitment process in trying to recruit and hire appropriate candidates to fill the position that you're processing for the green card at your company. So uh, I know Derek's been in the firm for close to maybe 10 years, and Jessica has been with us four years at this point. Uh, I, of course, started the firm over 20 years ago at this point. So you have close to half a century of knowledge right here with you guys. So today's topic, we're going to actually go over five or six important issues, the do's and don'ts that apply to the recruitment process with specific, uh, specifically touching upon the labor certification sort of and providing you an overview of how to test the labor market. What do you mean? What do we mean by the term able, willing, qualified and available U.S. workers? What is the role of the attorney and the role of the employer? Next, what are the best practices for you as employers? What do you need to be aware of so that you can actually focus on getting your job done, whether you're running a technology company and doing consulting, and how we can guide you and hold your hand, so give you some do's and don'ts to make your life simpler, because it is an extremely complex and long-winded process with a lot of technical stuff that needs to be taken care of. And unless you have the most amazing, knowledgeable legal team on your side, you're going to be either getting a denial, delaying the process, losing lots of money in newspaper advertisements, uh, and making your employees and yourself very upset. So it's very important to understand the process, how to prepare the recruitment report, and finally we'll share with you some of the trends in audits and cases from the Board of Alien Labor Certification Appeals, or BOLCA. So if I can start with you, Jessica, what is the purpose for the employer to test the labor market? So, of course, you as the employer, you know, want to uh, sponsor your foreign national employee. And in order to do so, we're going to give you a little bit of framework from the regulation, which indeed shows that you have to show that there are not sufficient United States workers who are able, willing, available, and qualified, and also that the employment of your foreign national employee will not displace any U.S. workers or adversely affect the wage and working conditions of U.S. workers. Going back to these these key phrases, Derek, what is able? Okay, so able is, are they able to accept the job now? Not in the future, not after graduation, but now, as you're doing the recruitment. Also, if the worker, by education, training, experience, or combination, is able to perform in a normally accepted manner the duties involved in the occupation as customarily performed by other U.S. workers similarly employed. 
Okay, so really what they're trying to say at this point is even though the green card is based on the concept of a future job offer, on the day that the PERM application is filed, the person needs to qualify and meet all of the criteria and tests on that day that the application is filed. Not in the future after graduation, after getting the license, but on that day. But still the person needs to be available in the future to do the job because it's not like the H1 based on a present job. It's based on the future job. So we tested the labor market. Derek talked a little bit about able. What is the definition of an able person? So Jessica, what is considered, who is considered a willing worker? So when you as the employer are looking at these potential applicants, not only do they have to be able to work, but they also need to be willing to accept the job as offered. A common example of this is, are they willing to accept the location of the job? You, the employer, are advertising for a specific location. For example, if your job is in Denver, Colorado, but the, the, the person is working in Chicago, Illinois, and is not willing to you know, move for the job, then they're not willing to accept the job as offered. Similarly, if you have a travel and relocation position, which is um, common for our employers that have consulting businesses, and the person is not willing to travel relocate, that can be another reason that they're not willing to accept the job as offered. In addition to being able and willing, there's also if they're qualified. And also I think the other common example about willing is the salary offered. Because if the prevailing wage determination per the Department of Labor, for example, is $50,000 for the job with, let's say, two years work experience or 100000 for somebody with five plus years of experience, then if the employee says to you, the U.S. worker says, well, I want that job and I'm willing to work in that location and I'm willing to um, travel and relocate anywhere in the country, but I want $125,000 and that's not the prevailing wage per the Department of Labor, their prevailing wage. You don't have to agree to give it to the U.S. worker. Right. And as, as we'll detail later in some of our common do's and don'ts, you want to make sure that you specifically tell them the prevailing wage. You don't just want to accept that this is what they're willing to accept. You want to specifically offer it to them so that they can decline. So, Derek, if I can now go to you, what is the meaning of the word qualified U.S. worker? Sure, Sheila. So the person has to be qualified for the job. And that's why it's very important to remember the job title, the job duties, and the requirements for the position. So, for example, the person has to meet the education requirements for the position. They also have to meet the experience requirements for the position. And if there are special requirements, they also have to meet that requirement as well. Now, even if the applicant has met the education requirements and the experience requirements and even special requirements, they also have to have the knowledge and ability to perform the job duties listed in the application. If they can't perform those job duties, then they're not qualified for the position. Now keep in mind something very important, that they need to meet the knowledge and ability requirement or they have to obtain the skills necessary to perform the job duties during a reasonable period of time of on-the-job training. So even if they don't actually have the knowledge and ability to perform the job duties when, you, when you're conducting the recruitment, if they could obtain the skills necessary to perform those job duties during a reasonable period of time on on-the-job training, they still need to be considered. Well, that's the reason that the U.S. Department of Labor routinely will give a really hard time when an employer turns down or rejects a U.S. applicant, a U.S. worker, a citizen, permanent resident, etc., by saying, 
sorry, this job can be learned in the next like couple of weeks or couple of months. So we don't believe that you're requiring such and such skill is truly a legitimate business reason to deny the position to the U.S. worker. So it's important to understand that. And so the reasonable, as Derek just pointed out, will also depend on the occupation, the industry, and the job opportunity. So if I can now jump to the last bullet point of the available, who is considered available? Right. So similar to the who is able, who is also available? Basically, they have to be available to work. One such scenario is is if a, a potential applicant requires sponsorship to work in the United States, they are not considered available for the position. One point that I did want to make is that with the new FAQ that came out, Frequently Asked Question, about laid-off workers, it's outside the scope of this teleconference, but just for employers to keep in mind that there may be potentially qualified U.S. workers who've been laid off during the past five, uh, six months previous to the labor certification filing that you may need to notify and consider, and that's something you should be thinking about um, when you're going through this process as well. And so basically, you know, with the able, willing, qualified, and available, there is also, you know, what is a U.S. worker? Yeah. So I know we kept using the term U.S. worker, available U.S. worker, because at the end of the day, each of us as employers who are sponsoring an employee or employees for the green card need to remember that if a qualified U.S. worker applies for the job, then either the process will have to discontinue or, or the employer has to show that they have many potential openings so that even by giving the job to the one or two or three people, there's still 10 more open positions, etc. But the regulations define the as a U.S. worker as either a U.S. citizen, a U.S. permanent resident, or a U.S. national, or even a foreign national, like someone on an asylee or refugee status, anybody that's legally permitted to work permanently in the United States, and as Jessica just pointed out, without separate sponsorship, because a lot of times employers will say, are you legally permitted to work in the U.S.? And an employee may say, yes, I am. But implied in that is that I need to be sponsored. Sorry, that's not a U.S. worker. So let's go jump into what are the limited roles that we as attorneys or law firms or lawyers are allowed to play in the processing of the PERM or labor certification. Okay, so it's very important to keep in mind that attorneys cannot interview applicants or make decisions regarding the recruitment process. This is critical. Now, there's one exception. If the attorney is a corporate counsel and his or her job normally is involved with actually doing the recruitment, then they can uh, participate. But So are you saying that if I'm the employer um, and I've hired you as the law firm to help me, that you can't do all this work, then why am I paying you your fees? Well, that's an excellent question, but it's true. We cannot actually interview applicants. We can't make any decisions, but we serve a very important role because what we can do is advise you about the legality of the decision to contact. For example, if you tell us that somebody is not qualified for the position, we can make sure that you also meet the legal requirements. So basically, as an attorney or law firm, it is not legal for the attorney to review or screen resumes before the employer reviews them to determine if candidates are qualified. We cannot interview the applicants. And in fact, I'm sure many of you have heard of that huge case that was subject to a lawsuit where 
a big law firm that actually did that. And actually, there's been more than one. There's been two or three different law firms and lawyers involved. And it was in the media and in the news. And there was a Department of Labor investigation. The lawyers thought they would try to be helpful. And they crossed that line. And when you cross that line, I tell employers all the time, while we're willing to do a lot to help you as employers, because that's our job and that's what you're paying us for, I don't want to see you in jail and I don't want to go to jail much as I love my clients and love all of you. Uh, Jessica, are there other issues of the role with respect to an attorney? Um, also, the the employer is determining, like you said, that the, the candidate is not qualified. So basically, once the employer is reviewing that resume, we as the attorney can make sure that your rejection you know, is lawful. Additionally, the attorney cannot sign the recruitment report. I often have employers ask if, if we can do that. And unfortunately, the employer is the one signing the recruitment report. In addition to what is the role of the attorney, you know, you as the employer have a unique role as well. Whomever you decide is going to receive resumes in your office should be the point of contact. You don't want resumes coming into your office, you know, here and there and not having a specific place for them. You want to make sure that that specific person is reviewing the resume to see if the applicant has the minimum requirements. And this means on the face of the resume, do they meet the education and experience requirements for the position? You also cannot consider preferences. So it is really important, even from the beginning, Sheila, that people craft these positions with the exact requirements that they would like in the labor certification. For example, if you're saying that a bachelor's plus five years of experience is your requirement, you cannot say master's preferred. They want actual uh, real-world requirements. Minimal requirements. Also, if the person, for example, the person who applies or your employee has a bachelor's plus, say, 10 years of experience, which is obviously more helpful for you and your business, but the person who applies has only bachelor's and five, and since that's probably the, what you would have done uh, for a whole bunch of people if you were running a uniform advertisement, you would not be able to turn down other good applicants who met all the other requirements because in your mind you had a preference for the eight or ten years of experience. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, like you were mentioning, it's all about being minimally qualified. And as we'll go over some helpful hints later, you know, when in doubt, contact. It does not hurt you as the employer to reach out and contact an applicant, even if you do not believe they meet the minimum education and experience requirement, just to get clarification and, you know, investigate a little bit further. Simil okay, so that makes sense. Now, Derek, what about what is the rule with respect to resumes? What is the employer's role? Right, so it's very important that the employer keep the resumes in a safe place. Um, and make sure that you review the resume very closely uh, to determine if the person has the education, experience, or special requirements for the position. Because if they do, they are potentially qualified. You will need to reach out and contact them. Now, make sure that all this is documented. It's very important because if an audit is received, there's a very good chance they're going to ask for uh, proof that, in fact, you contacted the applicants and that there's a lawful reason why each person is not qualified. So make sure, for example, that you take detailed notes, that you indicate the time when you called, the day when you called. Uh, did you actually email them? Did you, did you call them by phone? Did you send a certified letter? We normally advise our clients, when, you, when a resume is potentially qualified, first go ahead and send out a email. And if the person doesn't respond, 
then they should go ahead and contact them. Remember, good faith recruitment is critical. The Department of Labor wants to make, sure, make wants you to make sure that you've actually really tried to reach out to these applicants and to make sure that um, you've done your best to see if they're qualified for the position. Right. And so just as Derek just mentioned, you can't just leave a voicemail and say, oops, tried, because there's no way to double check that unless your computer system and your logs show that you left the voicemail, the date, the time, how many attempts you made to contact the potential candidate. Because the the one thing that Department of Labor is very, very concerned about is employers trying to play the game or scam the system. And remember, at the at the bo- the bottom line, as far as the U.S. Department of Labor is concerned, their only job and mandate isn't to help you or help me. Their job is to protect the U.S. worker, to protect them from foreign competition. Those are the candidates you're trying to hire, and they think they are taking away good, valuable jobs from U.S. workers who should be given those jobs. And since that is the mandate of the Department of Labor, they are going to put every hurdle and every way possible to either deny your perm application, delay it, put it into an audit. So keep that in mind when you're thinking about something. And Jessica, it looks like you're dying to say something. Yes, I like to I like to point out to employers this exact reason. You know, normally when we contact applicants, if they're not, you know, willing to contact us right back, we don't want to continue to contact them. This is one of the major points that this is a little bit different than real-world recruitment that normal HR goes through. You know, even though some of some people believe this is jumping through hoops, it is absolutely important that you're making those those contacts, you know, by email which creates its own, you know, written record, by by telephone as Derek was saying with the time and date and the person that's contacting and even by certified letter. You want to make sure, you know, from the beginning that you are making the best possible attempts to contact the U.S. worker and can document that as well. And by law, as we just pointed out, we as the law firm cannot do certain things and the employee cannot have any involvement in the recruitment process because sometimes people will tell the employer, will tell the employee, I don't have time. I'm running a business. I'm doing A or B. I'm going trying to drum up clients and business so I can meet payroll this month. You go and wrap up and finish and talk to the, discuss it with the lawyer and wrap it up. Well, guess what? Violation of law. No, no. That's a big no, no. Don't do it. Any other issues, Derek? Yeah. So, for example, if you get a resume and it's not really clear if they meet the requirements, let's say it's not clear what kind of degree they have, but you know they have a bachelor's degree, it's very important that you actually contact the applicant to resolve the ambiguity. You don't want the Department of Labor to think that somehow you really didn't try to clarify whether they actually met the requirements before you disqualify an applicant. So when in doubt, definitely contact the applicant, go through the process, document it, and make sure that you can be very clear that this person either is unable, unwilling, or is not qualified for the position. Okay. And generally, the rule is to contact the person within 14 days of the, getting the resumes. So what are, what are the other criteria, Derek? Right. And that's really important because we have seen cases, there are bulk of decisions out there where if you wait three or four weeks, then they could very well deny your case. So make sure that you don't wait more than 14 days before you contact an applicant uh, because they may conclude that it was bad faith and you didn't actually, you just sat on the resume and didn't take any action on it. But what if they Um, call the house and just speak with the spouse or a child? That's not good enough. They want to make sure that you really follow up with the applicant directly. And that means you want to document it by, like we discussed, email or certified mail. um, And 
make sure you make sure you have the documentation you need because if an audit is received, the Department of Labor will ask you and expect that documentation. Until how long should they wait for the resumes to keep coming in? Well, they have to consider any applicant all the way until the labor service is filed. So Well, but is there a, generally like a 30-day time frame? thought in general it was like 30 days or 60 days or just 30 because after that, if somebody sends it like six months later, why should I have to look at it? Right. That's why it's very important. Here at the Murthy Law Firm, what we try to do is make sure we can file a case as soon as the person is eligible to file. So that means we want to make sure that all the recruitment is done during the 30-day um, the 30-day uh, period when the SWAD's operator is being posted, then there's a 30-day quiet period when you cannot file. As soon as that quiet period is completed, you can file the case, and that's what you want to try to do every time. Good, good. Okay. And uh, what happens? Is the employer absolutely required by law then to hire the person who was very well qualified for the job? Actually, the employer is not legally required to hire anyone recruited for the LC process, but this is the important thing. If the employer finds a qualified U.S. worker, they don't need to hire that individual. However, the employer cannot file the labor certification application based on those recruitment efforts. Now, there is an exception, and that is if the employer is actually recruiting for multiple openings, then as long as they actually do hire that U.S. worker, they can proceed and go ahead and file the labor cert. But it's very important they understand that just because you go through this whole process, it doesn't mean that you somehow have to hire the U.S. worker, um, but you cannot file the labor cert. Okay, thank you, Derek. So, Jessica, if I can now come to you, what are the points that, as an employer, you need to keep in mind? We call them the do's and the don'ts. So what is it the employer should not do with respect to the recruitment process? So like you were saying earlier, although this job is for a future job offer, you do not want to tell the applicant that the position is filled by a foreign national worker. You know, this job is open to all, like we mentioned, able, willing, qualified, available U.S. workers. And in such, you don't want to just kind of end it there that this is just for the labor certification. Similarly to what we spoke of before, you don't want to reject overqualified applicants. You know, say on the resume they have a Ph.D. and the requirements are a bachelor's and five years of experience. You know, you'd still want to contact that person even if they meet more than the requ than the requirements. What if the person who applies says, I'm 65 years old and I'm going to retire in five years? Similarly, similarly, you want to keep in mind these state and federal laws that you as the employer must abide by. You're not allow allowed to ask illegal questions such as what you are speaking of, age, also marital status, sexual orientation, disability, ethnicity, race, citizenship, and religion. You want to keep that in mind, you know, also that you are still, you know, within state and federal law. You also do not want to ask for English proficiency if it's not stated specifically in the ETA 9089 form. And the reason for this is basically when you are setting up the position, any requirement that you must have should be somewhere listed in the labor. And so if it's not one of your requirements for the job, then you don't want to ask someone about a requirement that does not exist. Well. Like I mentioned before, you also only want to ask if they require sponsorship because that means that they're, you know, available and able to work. You don't want to specify which documents they have to show because you don't want to be violating other laws in asking that simple question. 
like Derek mentioned, when you're when you're going through and looking at these lawful job related reasons, you know, if you do find a U.S. worker that, for all intents and purposes, is qualified, you can't reject for sub- subjective reasons such as they're not outgoing, maybe they don't, their personality doesn't fit with the team, um, or you only think that they're using your job as a stepping stone. That would not be a lawful job related reason. So unless you put that, as, she, as Jessica said, or have a similar test from all candidates and part of the job duty says must work with a team in a certain cohesive manner, which is part of your job duties, then it might work. But the less you have mentioned there and the more you leave it up for the final to say, aha, this person had a very annoying personality, Jessica says, no way, it's not going to work, no how. Anything else, Derek? Well, you had mentioned as well before about the salary. Now, if a person is not willing to accept the salary offered, of course, they can be disqualified. But what you can't say is, what is your minimum salary requirements? And if they come back and it's over what the offered salary is, just say, sorry. They have to know what the offered salary is before they can be disqualified. Okay. So now let's jump to the next. We've gone over the do's and don'ts. Let's look at the recruitment report. What is a recruitment report? As was mentioned earlier, it's the summary of why you are proceeding with your candidate, hopefully, and why each of the applicants who applied for the position will not and do not meet the minimum criteria to get the job with the company. So what is the employer's responsibility? The employer is required to retain for five years from the time of filing, along with the audit file, which has to be prepared but you don't actually submit it to the Department of Labor unless you're audited and asked for it. And obviously, it must be signed by the employer because, God forbid, that particular person in HR or that particular company president has moved on, left, unfortunately passed away, and you hadn't gotten it signed, you will have a deep, you'll be in deep problems later if there is an audit. Anything else? Yes. As you were saying, um, it must describe the steps undertaken, meaning all your forms of recruitment. It must show the number of resumes received, the number of candidates hired, and the number of U.S. workers rejected, categorized with lawful job-related reasons. One of the things that employers ask is you don't have to specifically list out every single name on the recruitment report. Sometimes it guides you, but you definitely want to have each reason for disqualification, you know, set out apart from itself so that it's very clear why you're rejecting the U.S. worker. So you don't have to mention it per name and say A was rejected because of A, B, and C. You can say a total of 25 resumes were received, um, you know, 20 of them appeared to qualify, but here's the reasons why they couldn't and summarize it. Exactly. And then if they ask in the audit report, it needs to have more information with each resume and each lawful reason. Exactly. But if you as the employer would like to put the names in because it helps you with the categories, by all means, you can you can do that. Okay. Um, Derek, anything else that we're missing in the recruitment report? I think we pretty much covered it for the recruitment report, but I want to stress something very important, and that is we need to take the process seriously. Um, you know, most, if not all, audits actually are requesting copies of resumes, recruitment report, documentation showing good faith recruitment. And just saying that there is no qualified applicants will not suffice. The employer really needs to take the time to actually go through this process, to review the resumes, to determine who's potentially qualified, and then to follow up, whether it be email, phone call, or letter and be prepared to actually document every step of this process. 
If they wait three weeks or four weeks, as we explained before, it's possible that the entire case could end up getting denied. Remember, this takes, this takes a very long process. First, you have to prepare and file a perm case. And then, once you file the perm case, it can take anywhere between six months or a year and a half to get it actually approved or for a decision to be made. So, if a case gets an audit, for example, it's going to take about a year and a half for the Department of Labor to come back with a decision. It would be unfortunate if you did everything right up to this point. The two Sunday ads, the three additional forms of recruitment, the notice of posting, everything is right, but you don't do a good job with the recruitment. And as a result, when you've been audit is received and they don't like it, they deny the case. So make sure you take this very seriously. Okay. Um, and, 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 and to kind of round out what uh, Derek just said, the, as an employer, we, you cannot cure the defect in the process by attempting to interview applicants after an audit is issued because all of that should have been done way before during the process, during the correct time involved. Where since we're always very sensitive to time-related issues, and I see that we're close to 30 minutes uh, in the process, but we always try to wrap up between 30 and 45 minutes, we will absolutely wrap it up in the next five to 10 minutes, hopefully. So just stay with us. We have the last important topic to di discuss with you about what are the current trends in audits from Department of Labor audits and Balka cases? So right now there is a trend in audit to specifically show that a worker that you've lawfully disqualified for knowledge and ability could not be trained in a reasonable amount of time. In the audit, they refer to what we talked about before, the able and qualifying U.S. worker. Um, if by education, training, experience, or a combination would be able to perform the same job duties, and in addition, they'd like to for you to provide documentation explaining why the U.S. applicants deemed not qualified could have attained the skills necessary to perform the job duties that are listed in the ETA 9089 during a reasonable period of on-the-job training. This is actually interesting because we're seeing this come up more and more with audits. And what's interesting about this is that the regulations don't actually define what is reasonable period of on-the-job training. But if the DOL concludes that an applicant could have taken a simple online tutorial or a training course to acquire the skill, it is possible that the DOL will conclude the applicant could have performed the duties during a reasonable period of on-the-job training. And even though you did all this recruitment, and even though you said that this person didn't have this special skill, they could say, sorry, we think that if the person was had some on-the-job training, then they could have been fine. Okay, just to be clar just to clarify, the DOL obviously means the U.S. Department of Labor, and the ETN 9089 is the main form for PERM that most of you must be familiar with. Jessica, exactly. is there any case that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, there is a matter of Kenametal, which is a troubling uh, case for for us because although the case was in supervised recruitment, it does show that the employer has a duty to investigate if there's a reasonable possibility that they meet the job requirements. In this specific case, the uh, applicant did not have the required degree, but they had so much experience that the Department of Labor felt that they could, uh, should have been contacted. And this case did have the special Kellogg language, meaning the suitable combination of education or training or, or experience, whereas future cases, this may not be an issue. Right. So in this case, Baca concluded that the employer should have granted interviews to applicants who didn't possess a required degree, but actually did possess enough experience to justify an interview, given that the ads indicated that the employer would accept any suitable combination of education, <laughs> experience, or training for the position. So this Kellogg language was actually in the ad. 
And it's unclear whether in the if another application, if the Kellogg language was missing, whether they would come to the same decision. But I think it's very important that we be aware of this case and when we prepare our PERM applications to be able to anticipate these possible issues um, that may come up in the future. And you know, the funny thing is, this so-called magic language that we came up with, Kellogg, was because the Department of Labor was actually denying cases saying if the person only had a foreign degree, like a four-year engineering degree from a university in India or some other place, that that would not satisfy them. And so you needed to put this magic language about any suitable combination of education experience Education or experience would, you know, be sufficient for the, would be satisfactory to the employer. Education, training, or experience uh, would be satis- satisfactory to the employer. And so it's a funny thing. You thought you were being extra smart and extra clever in putting that language in. And unfortunately, in that particular case, in the Kenna Metal case, it came back to bite the employer in the rear, unfortunately, because then it, they came back and said, aha, we got you. And so we need to, as employers, be extremely careful. And, you know, I feel like we've touched the tip of the iceberg with respect to the PERM process because, as you can see, PERM, the entire labor certification process, the Permanent Electronic Review Management, or PERM, which was sort of the more supposedly streamlined way of processing cases by the Department of Labor, is an extremely complex, long-winded, time-consuming, and expensive process. And all of the old cases from 50 or 100 years ago that could have applied continue to apply even though the forms themselves have changed. The case law, by and large, about you know not having unduly restrictive requirements, not to tailor-make the job, not to do certain things, not to incorrectly recruit people. Uh, employees can again come back and haunt you as an employer. And there are very strict limitations on what you as an employer is legally allowed to do during the PERM recruitment process and what we as your lawyers can do for you uh, in the process. Because as I tell people, you and I love our employees and love our business, but we certainly don't love them enough to want to go to jail for anybody. So having a strong, knowledgeable, brilliant legal team that is up to date with the cutting edge legal knowledge, the latest cases, and that can mentor you and guide you and get you approvals. That's what you need. Clearly, we at the Murthy Law Firm can guide you and help you and support you and make your process hopefully a little more fun and a little less stressful. So we really hope that we have provided you some bright line tests, some guidance, and some insights about possible risks and potential problems that could occur in the PERM process. We thank you, as always, for joining us. On behalf of Derek Sewall, Jessica Beaver, myself, Sheila Murthy, and our entire Murthy Law Firm family, we thank you for joining us today, and we look forward to continuing to take great care of you, your business, and all of your work, especially with respect to PERM and any green card processing. Have a great day.